This episode was produced online, and Andrew's recording isn't very audible in places due to technical issues that we faced. We also lost Anu during the recording due to connectivity issues, so apologies. Recording online has its challenges and we're learning as we go. The question is, why are people resorting to religion? People which is pushed to the brink, the political situation in Myanmar, which is deteriorating, their right to safety, they're not wanted anywhere. Everything seems so uncertain. And if not going back to Allah or a spiritual guide, then whom would they turn to? Everyone has failed them. Nobody's thinking about their well-being. Hello, and welcome to the Evidence for Development podcast, where we explore methods and evidence developed and used in the global south to shape policy and improve lives. If you're interested in research, knowledge exchange and learning related to international development, then this podcast is for you. I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray, your host, and for this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Anupama Ranawana, who is Christian Aid's thematic research specialist. One of her many research areas is on faith actors and theology. Welcome. Today, we're talking to Sneha Krishnan and Andrew Powell from Environment Technology and Community Health, or ETCH, a consultancy firm based in India. They are consultants who carried out research for Christian Aid Bangladesh to understand the role of faith-based leaders in Christian Aid's COVID-19 response program with Rohingya refugee and host communities in Cox's Bazaar. Before we begin discussing the research, we need to set the scene a bit. Cox's Bazaar is now the site of the world's largest refugee camp, inhabited mostly by Rohingya refugees who have fled from ethnic and religious persecution in Myanmar. Since August 25, 2017, around 700,000 Rohingya entered Bangladesh, and almost half are settled in Cox's Bazaar. While Bangladesh has allowed the Rohingya to seek shelter within its borders, in 1992, the government of Bangladesh stopped recognizing these Rohingya as refugees, which means that they are in a legal limbo and denied protections through international law. This means they can't work in the formal sector and they face barriers accessing education and health services and don't have recourse to the law. Andrew and Sneha, you didn't visit Cox's Bazaar for this research but I understand that you've been there before. Can you paint a picture of what it is like? In some ways, the camp, as as it was being reported, took the form of a a sort of very active hive of activity and construction taking place. Visually, you'd see a bamboo city emerging. The other image that I think I've taken away from there now is is the sense of the faces of uh, children at that time being very stark very expressionless, a memory that sticks, sticks with me to this, to this day. Before this research, I think just before the pandemic hit, we were undertaking a photo elicitation exercise where we encouraged the camp members to take pictures, actually, about what they meant about health systems. So I had uh, looked at the different ways in which they interacted with health systems before the pandemic hit. So I had some background going into this project. The picture that comes to my mind is, of course, of these closely knit spaces 
of people who live in very close proximity to each other but not in terms of like physical crowdedness but more in terms of how every everybody knows everyone and the familiarity and what i remember is families who have lived there together for many many generations and then newer families who have migrated since the 2017 exodus as well so it's a very interesting mix of families who live there together Okay, thank you both for giving us a sense of 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 what the camps were like or what you what you saw when you when you visited. Sneha, within your research reports, a faith leader is defined as someone of any gender who is recognized by their faith community both formally or informally and plays an authoritative and influential leadership role to inspire and lead others. I was wondering if you could explain who the faith actors were that you interviewed as part of the research. and what sorts of things do they do in their day-to-day roles in the camp that's a very interesting summary of what we consider to be faith actors in this research as well i think traditionally the idea is of a faith leader especially for muslim communities is the imam who is the head of the mosque who is considered to be a religious leader and a spiritual guide for the communities there's another figure called a muezzin who is also part of the mosque who helps in managing the day-to-day affairs there we interviewed these two figures prominently in the areas that we knew christian aid was part of the hygiene response besides these two major actors we also expanded on the definition by reaching out to other members within the community who perform outreach activities so in a way they actually go door to door and or uh, speak about religious scriptures to for example women in the communities so there are women leaders we also spoke to traditional healers a couple of them who are called as kabiraj in these communities they are traditional healers so they do not directly speak about religion but they are also considered to be someone who is knowledgeable about health practices uh, which are relevant to their tradition we also spoke to the local partners as well who gave us an understanding of what is it that means who is a religious person in this community and who is a spiritual so we tried to get a flavor of what is spirituality and religion and tradition mean by speaking to various actors which goes beyond this traditional definition of a faith based leader and do you have anything you'd like to add around that Yeah I think one of the observations that we made was the religiosity was very very high in this community and where you have examples of people within the community that are very active and traveling between areas or or were actively working those figures would fit our description of someone that played a leadership role uh, with significant levels of religiosity therefore could be could be seen as a faith actor When COVID began to sweep across the globe in March and April 2020, Christian Aid needed to respond. A central pillar in the immediate humanitarian response was a focus on working with local and national faith actors, including faith-based organizations and faith leaders. The study aimed to understand the role of faith leaders working with communities as agents of change. How did you find that the Rohingya community viewed faith leaders in Cox's Bazaar? 
for any community which is so traditional be it based on their religion based on their language they look up to leaders to get guidance when you consider the rohingya refugees who have uh, come from myanmar and who have tried to assimilate in bangladeshi uh, host population we see a lot of similarities in how they look up to religion to help them tide through difficult times be it displacement be it day to day struggles of poverty of livelihoods even marriages so we found that a lot of community members have deep respect these leaders are quite authoritative figures their word is considered to be the final word they are as close to in terms of carrying the message of allah to these community members so they treat these leaders with a lot of respect a lot of warmth and it it shows from their leaders attitudes towards his flock as well so they would also be concerned and do the best that they can so that the people with whom they interact their lives are improved as well so there is a lot of love there is a lot of warmth and there is a lot of respect in these relationships Okay, great. Thanks. And do you have anything to add to that? I think within our study, we look at sources of trust of information, as well as institutions, and in which faith leaders are featured prominently, um, and and the institutions of, of faith communities also featured heavily, including on matters of health. What role would you say faith actors played in the response to the COVID pandemic um, in Cox's Bazaar? What would you say were your top line findings? Yeah, I think that's a good question. The what, what what the entry point of faith leaders allowed us to do was to, I think, to understand in a much richer way the the social structures and the groups and way in which society is organised within the Rohingya settlement. I think what we understood from this in the context of COVID as an emergent pandemic at the time, and also as a public health mitigation strategy that we were exploring, I think. what we what we saw and understood quite clearly in fact was that how beliefs that were constructed through the interaction with with faith uh, actors and leaders shaped behavior and certainly public health uh, actions that resulted from people's beliefs and behavior so i think that was that became very highlighted through the study could you give us an example of that andrew one example may be in the context of covid and world health organization mitigation guidance there are this includes actions such as uh, good personal hygiene and washing hands now this is something that is practiced in the muslim community and is promoted through through the imams and through the leaders so what we see is an example of an activity that is both practiced and promoted but also is is a very useful mitigation uh, technique so just to follow that up are you suggesting that the religious leaders are already talking about the importance of cleanliness in terms of their in terms of the messages they are preaching and then there's this overlap then between that and the public health messaging that is being promoted by the world health organization just to make sure i've understood that's right there there are activities that are consistent with world health organizations messages around mitigation that the faith leaders were able to expand on or continue to to promote and to emphasize which was consistent for both for their faith practices but also for good public health um, mitigation 
Sneha, I think you wanted to come in and, and say something there. Yeah. If if you just dial back to 2020 and the lack of information that we had at that time as to what the virus was, the nature of its impact on human health and how it was even spreading, the information was rapidly evolving. And you have to look at this community in Cox Bazar, which is living there without access to digital phones, without actually knowing why certain measures such as lockdown was introduced by the government, which was disrupting their livelihoods. Within that context, I think these communities looked up to these faith leaders to not just understand how to practice themselves, like how to maintain these hygiene practices or inculcate these new practices, but also how to carry on with uh, their disrupted lives. So beyond giving guidance on hand washing and wearing a mask, etc., I think the faith leaders were anyways key figures whom communities actually looked up to, to understand how to tide through these difficult times. A lot of information and a lot of focus was actually placed on the misinformation and misbeliefs that were being spread. But I don't think that was just particular to this community. I think across India, across UK, we came across similar examples of when we don't have the right answers, we try to build our own narratives to explain a new phenomenon. So we would not limit the spread of misinformation and misbeliefs to just this particular community. Could you give an example of that, Sneha, where there was misinformation and the the faith leaders were able to clarify some of the correct public health messaging? So that was a challenge, I suppose, even for faith leaders to be able to get access to timely information. And I think a lot of support from the training workshops and interactions that were held with Christian Aid's local partners, uh, NGO called DAM and DSK. DAM stands for uh, Dhaka Asania Mission and DSK uh, stands for Durya Swasthya Kendra. Um, I hope I pronounce them right. The interactions with these uh, NGO partners actually also enabled the faith-based leaders to get the right information and then be able to pass it on to the communities that they were working with closely. Some interviews that we did with Madrasa teachers, for example, Madrasa is informal school, which are set up in these camps where children go for non-formal education access. And some of the teachers there were able to give us examples of how there were a lot of misconceptions about the virus uh, being sent from China to disrupt the global systems or how this was a ruse by the government to ask Rohingya community members or to send them away somewhere. So a lot of apprehensions and a lot of misconceptions among the community members were quite prevalent at that time. And I think a lot of support and a lot of assurance from these faith actors played a critical role for community members to just see through these difficult times as well. So you've already spoken about much of this already, Andrew and Sneha. You've spoken about how religious leaders have, you know, made the public health messaging culturally relevant to the context, how they have helped to counteract some of the misinformation th that was being spread at the time. But I was wondering if you could talk about how effective you found faith leaders to be in terms of reducing the spread of COVID. What, what was their overall impact? In order to situate this work and situate our understanding of the information that existed, I think 
uh, Sneha made a good point about reminding ourselves of this time uh, across the world when the pandemic was emerging. For many of us, we haven't seen anything like it. You know, to paint the picture, you have a community that identifies living in a settlement, but they don't have access to the usual services that we would expect. So they're sort of 15, 20 kilometers away from the nearest market, uh, large-scale market in Cox Bazaar, that they have limited or no access to SIM cards. They have limited or no access to the internet, very limited radio channels, and no papers or forms of media that we might ordinarily expect to to be able access to. So so the information was channeled particularly through leaders and through prominent figures. And so the role they play was was, was extended through that. Now, I think there was also a challenge that we confronted in that the public health scientific, you know, based on scientific principles and the, the sort of public health approach that is promoted theologically do overlap. Which is which was which was one of the findings, but there are also areas where they are different and they come from a different understanding. So I think one of the challenges with the work was trying to understand how to bring those two disparate parts together and look at consistency um, and coherence between the two. So do you have an example of that that you could provide, Andrew, just to f- to follow up where where the the messaging was very different, as you say? One of the reports that we heard consistently was this um, idea of neat and clean. People were often reporting this. And this would this this would anchor itself in the idea of cleanliness that is in the teachings of the Quran. And I think from that we were able to promote ideas of hygiene and expand on hygiene uh, mitigation methods in a way that was theologically consistent, but also serve to the, to the scientific principles so that we were able to find that bridge. Moving from mitigation to risk, what were the risks identified through the research process associated with working with faith actors? And as a kind of follow-up, in what ways can we avoid reinforcing any unequal power relationships that might occur? So before we... Um, started this research, I think uh, a lot of literature did talk about the risks of working with faith actors in the sense how they would not be neutral actors because they would tend to favor their communities or people that they interact with. So with any kind of local leadership positions, this is often considered to be a huge challenge. And we humanitarian actors tend to uh, view this in antithesis to our views about how uh, relief should be neutral and we shouldn't be partial to any part, any particular groups. The other risk of working with faith actors, which we found in literature, was also in terms of within a patriarchal society, trying to pass on the messages of subordination and uh, women tending to listen to the men in the household. So in a way, leading to a lot of increase in gender-based violence and uh, similar research, which was done in the light of Christian AIDS response in the Ebola pandemic, which happened uh, uh, in the last decade, we found that faith leaders did have a role to play because even there, uh, there were a lot of misconceptions about how people of a particular community are further marginalized because of the narrative which is built. So because of their practices of 
washing the dead before burial, the burial practices, which was considered to be the reason why Ebola was spreading if the diseased were actually infected. Uh, so faith leaders had to intervene in a way which was culturally appropriate for them so that they could pass on the message, which also retained their cultural practices, but also ensured that people took measures to not get infected themselves. Similarly, if you look at Bangladesh, we went in with this apprehension of were there any risks associated of working with faith-based leaders. Since we did not look at the gender-based violence and we particularly focused mostly on public health messaging and passing on information about these health practices which will help them get infected because this was done in the first year, so 2020, uh, I think we did not come across many examples of risks. The way we undertook this research was actually looking at different actors and what their perceptions about faith leaders were. So trying to look at the reasons why communities would go and consult a religious leader rather than trying to see how information is just going one way. We were trying to look at also from the end of the respondents. So we undertook a survey uh, of 100 households, both the host communities and refugee communities. And we tried to see what were the different reasons for which they would consult a traditional leader. So anything ranging from trying to look at the public health measure or to know or, or to get information about livelihoods, about food rationing. So they, they would actually access these leaders for some, much more than just uh, public health messaging. And we find that to be the biggest strength of working with faith actors, because yes, public health messaging was one aspect, but beyond that, they play a wider role, which can help influence community members, both the host as well as the refugee communities. So they play a very crucial role in social cohesion amongst these actors as well. The risk, I think, just to answer your question, is also in how humanitarian actors consider the faith leaders as just instrumental to meeting our objectives and just as carriers of messages for public health. But they play a larger role than that and we should not be limiting them is what I would try and bring in and highlight. You've touched upon uh, a number of fascinating issues there, Sneha. So I'm going to come back and unpick a few of those. You've already spoken there about the role of faith leaders within the Ebola response in Sierra Leone and Liberia. Just kind of for, for wider reference, Christian Aid uh, did some research around this, exploring the relationship between humanitarian responses and religion and developed some research on the role of faith leaders in the Ebola response in Sierra Leone and Liberia and West Africa. And we'll link to that research in the podcast notes. Uh, the research found that faith leaders played a very important role in communities there as well, but that there was a delay in engaging them at the start of the outbreak. But once they did become involved, faith leaders played a transformational role. I was wondering uh, if you, you know, had looked at that research and how you felt that related to your findings within Cox's Bazaar. We did refer to this work by Andy Featherstone and other consultants who had evaluated this Christian aid response. And it did speak to us in a lot of ways because 
being in South Asia at that time of the pandemic and looking at how religious leaders, even in India, were using the pandemic as an excuse to further their own products. It was very interesting to see how the narratives for and against both the religious leaders were playing out in real time. But our goal was not to impose our ideas as outsiders, but to actually look at what the voices of both uh, the communities that we were interacting with and the actors that we were engaging with, what, what were their perceptions and how they looked at faith leaders in this particular context. That is what we were interested in. And uh, like you said, both the partners in Bangladesh, Christian aid staff in Bangladesh, understood and recognized the value of working with these leaders, especially during the pandemic, because they were limited in terms of mobility in accessing these camps. They had to rely on local leaders to be able to pass on messages or understand what is the need and the context within the camps as well. So they were not only passing on information, but they were also receiving and collecting data in terms of what is happening within the camp itself, where, where what, what the needs were as they were evolving. So I think it was Christian Aid had an objective to build a partnership with them rather than just being instrumentally using faith leaders to just pass on information. And when you think about from the community's perspective about what they felt the faith leaders could do or could not do in this particular instance, we did uh, find a lot of resonance with uh, the Ebola context as well and the role that faith leaders played in these communities and how communities perceived them. But there was an understanding that a major section of the society, that is women, did not interact with the religious figures such as imams and mohijins. So then in the absence of that interaction, how do we then reach out to this major group of women within these camps? That was a huge challenge that we tried to un unpack. Yeah, if I can just expand on that, actually, I, we do see this work as a continuation of that, of that study. And I think what we were uh, interested in doing was taking very much a sort of anthropological or social lens to faith and looking at how social norms and cultural norms threaded through people's faith practices in which we, we did recognize some of the limitations such as some, some of the genderized aspects. So I think the way that, that, that we expanded on that was looking at authoritative leadership but also influential leadership. And considering how, for example, women that work as nurses or teachers had a, a huge influence on, on the community. And so, therefore, by doing, by accessing women uh, to engage in the study, we were able to consider and, and look at how faith leadership could, um, could access uh, more representative groups. What was your role in the research process? Who else and what other organizations did you work with and what was their role in the process? So two of the Christian aid partners, DAM and DSK, DAM standing for Dhaka Ahsanya Mission and DSK standing for Dushta Swasthya Kendra, they both were intervention partners. We actually also interacted or partnered actually with Helios, which was a research consultancy based out of Dhaka. They provided us with local support in terms of accessing the camps and undertaking the surveys and focus group discussions. 
and interviewing uh, some of the community members imams muezzins and these traditional healers as well so they were our eyes and ears on the ground and they equally participated in designing and developing the questionnaires along with us so then our role was in in a way to oversee the entire process in terms of what areas to focus on on how to shape and design this formative research to make it useful for um questionnaire th- through data collection analysis even training so we were able to rely on our partners to interact directly with some of the members as well so in case a uh, network was available and if we could reach out to some of these members we were actually speaking to them directly for some of these interviews through whatsapp or through ms teams so it 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 was done in a very difficult time but technology really enabled us to give a sense of how how the process is going on through day to day interactions through regular updates as well so it was a very mutually benefiting and equally led partnerships uh, f- for this particular research andrew and sneha what would you say you learnt through the research process you've you've previously mentioned the difficulty in involving the rohingya as peer researchers for example can you discuss why that is and what you might do differently next time yeah i think there's a, at least a couple of strong learnings that came out of the process and also from the sort of content side so i think one of our hopes at the beginning of this work in engaging with a population that is very constrained on how its voice is heard and promoted was to as far as possible access those members from the rohingya community to be active participants and peer researchers and that was something that was that we found very difficult partly due to practicalities partly due to limitations on employment and communication so i think we working with helios enjoyed a very strong relationship working working with them in which they were able to engage with the hingers but i think as remote um, participants ourselves i think we weren't able to get as close as i think we 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 hope to i think on the on the content side of the work what we've taken away is really understand i think a much more rich and in-depth understanding of how world views or ways of understanding new phenomena shape beliefs and, and and i think the role of leadership as champions within that you also mentioned that christian aid has very good local partnerships and that that helped develop a very strong acceptance level of the partners during the research process could you talk a bit about that the trust Yeah absolutely I think many of the topics that we were hoping to enter on were ones that could be considered very sensitive and I think central to that is having uh, relationships already in place uh, through local partners that were able to pose and receive that kind of content and information when we're talking about trust or matters of personal and public health and everyday practices within communities and groups that are often quite private or keep themselves themselves so i think it was it was not an addition it was very central and i think we wouldn't have been able to just arrive and start to pose those kind of questions i think it was you know wholly contingent on existing trust relationships 
And you've spoken a little bit about some of the obstacles to involving the Rohingya as peer researchers, but could you just explain that a little bit more for, for people who might not be familiar with the context? What were, the, what were those obstacles? Yeah, I think, well, certainly employment is very difficult. It's, it was possible that Rohingya can be employed on a daily basis, but in a very limited form and couldn't hold any formal employment. So uh, in our wish to have them as equal participants uh, and stakeholders, in our wish that they would participate as, as researchers in addition to informing the work, um, which they did, that became very difficult and constrained, uh, as well as communication and not having mobility and ways to move around easily, uh, certainly outside of the settlement, and ways to communicate and keep it in, in coordinate. It became within the constraints that we had and the partner had, it yeah, became a significant limitation. Yeah, I think just just to for listeners, so I think you mentioned this previously, Andrew, but the Rohingya were unable to have smartphones or to have SIM cards. So that when you're referring to the limitations on communications, I assume that's what you're referring to there. Yeah, exactly. Throughout much of 2020, there was uh, significant limitations on access to SIM cards and access to all everyday communication. So even even outside of that, many Rohingya would access a phone only through through neighbors or one member between, you know, a large group may may have access to a phone. So it's it, it becomes a little bit more difficult. So from my perspective, there was a lot of learning and unlearning as well. Most of the unlearning has happened since we've carried out this research. A learning definitely was being able to rely on technology to conduct this kind of a virtual research with local partners. It was a great learning experience in itself. But since having undertaken this research, a lot of unlearning has happened because From an outsider's perspective, looking at faith leaders as being fatalistic, as authoritarian, does seem to be the first strand which emerges. From an outsider's perspective, it does emerge that faith leaders were fatalistic. This was also what some of the community members could bring into our group discussions as as well. But the question is, why are people resorting to religion? People which is pushed to the brink and abandoned by the international community, their host country, their native country, they, they are not wanted anywhere. The political situation in Myanmar, which is deteriorating, their right to safety, uh, safe and uh, voluntarily returning back to their homeland. Everything seems so uncertain. And in that scenario, if not if not going back to Allah or a spiritual guide, then whom would they turn to, right? Everyone has failed them in providing them a safe and secure and uh, nobody's thinking about their well-being. I think after, during our research, there were discussions about a lot of uh, refugee members uh, were afraid that they were going to be sent to a big island And since we completed this work, we actually saw a lot of news reports as well, right? That they were being sent to uh, Bhashanchar, which was a big island in the middle of the river. So you see that a lot of apprehension and a lot of uh, desolation. And then you understand why they are resorting to religion in this case. That, That has been my biggest understanding 
of the work and i can't say i understand it yet but there are a lot of other strands which we as humanitarian actors do not consider quite often because we just go with our program mindsets we do needs assessment we give what they want at that time and we don't think about the history that led them to come to this place and their future which we think we are not in a shape to uh, we are not in a position to shape or define so i i feel that is the biggest challenge yeah i think what we've understood is that how power is reproduced and exists within the community like rohingyas so i think first of all is acknowledging existing power structures and understanding socio-cultural norms and how power is reproduced through those so i think that that was our first sort of recognition and then within that we were able to consider how and as an organization maybe how christian aid is able to consider what aspects of of that of the power structures are consistent with the the practices and the, and the, the beliefs of an organization of christian aid and then other areas where further representation was promoted or where there was conflicting or inconsistent um, use of power um, could be could be recognized for me i think what matters is uh, what happens when humanitarian actors are no longer involved i think i have always been fascinated by this question even in my research even in my phd doctoral work as well what happens when the organizations leave and in this case especially during the lockdown as we saw when there is restrictions in mobility then we have to rely on local actors but that doesn't mean that the local actors are not involved in the absence of humanitarian actors so what i'm trying to get at is irrespective of whether we work with local actors or not they do have a role to play in shaping a community's recovery from conflicts from disasters from day to day struggles political economic as well so we see that they do have a role to play some of them do exceptionally well some of them need more resources some of them need hand holding and need to be given access to resources yes all that of all of that is true but in the absence of humanitarian action these actors are anyways going to influence this recovery so the question is for us as humanitarian actors are we looking at them as agents to further our agenda or are we supporting them in shaping the agenda that they want uh, the recovery that they see a future that they feel important and heard and um, are able to give a platform to the voiceless even within their communities as well so it's going to be a partnership which works both upwards and uh, right down to the bottom as well so i don't think it's an either or situation anyways well many thanks andrew and sneha it's been a fascinating conversation um i feel like we could talk a lot more about all of these issues but i'd like to thank you both very much for your time thank you so much it was a pleasure Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Evidence for Development podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about any of the research we've discussed, please check the episode notes for more information and links. <laughs>